If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I'll be sharing an interview I did with Rob Cairns, who is the composer of Love, Death, and Robots, which is exclusively to Netflix. So you'll enjoy our conversation about his career, his early work with Blur Studios, and his current work with Love, Death, and Robots. And it's all today, and it begins now. Welcome to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. I'm Randy Andrews, and I'm here with Rob Cairns, the composer of Love, Death, and Robots. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you, Rob, what started your career in film composing? Do you mean what got me interested in it, or what was my first job? Or both? Uh, what? <laughs> Probably both. What got me interested in it was, you know, I, I, I sort of always had, I was a fan of, of film music and, you know, the the 80s, John Williams, you know, iconic late 70s and early 80s scores became very popular, uh, almost a type of pop music. I mean, they were really celebrated. I, I recall a uh, like an NBC John Williams special, you know, sort of celebrating it. And he had done... Jaws and Close Encounters, Star Wars, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So film music sort of became something that people were paying a little bit more attention to. Uh, and like I said, I was already a fan. I hadn't really considered a career in it until uh, an art teacher at my high school sort of, you know, who was also a fan of film music, sort of suggested it like, Rob, you know, you're, you know, you show some talent in music and you seem to be a big fan of, of this form. You should maybe consider it as a career. Uh, and that's kind of how I got started uh, as far as thinking about like, oh, maybe I should try to do this. And Berkeley College of Music in Boston had just started a film scoring or film music composition major you could actually get a, a a bachelor degree in it they were the first ones to do it and and that's what i did i ended up going there and getting a major in it was a dual major in film music composition and music and music education 
And the second part of the question would my first job was as a composer was in, in the early 90s on a video game. Uh, I was hired as a production assistant and sort of a PC tech nerd mm-hmm. um, on a video game that was sort of a precursor to Guitar Hero. It wasn't affiliated with them. It was called Virtual Guitar and it, it, mm-hmm. it didn't really uh, it never really quite had the success um that guitar hero had but it was the same idea you had this sort of plastic guitar like thing that had a real real guitar strings on it and you would learn songs they had this sequence it 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 sort of you started out in your bedroom and you learned a couple of songs and then some somebody from down the street heard you and you would go play in their garage and you know as you you kind of work your way up to playing clubs but whenever you failed if you played really badly you know they would kick you out of the band or if you went Hmm. to a club uh, and they kicked you out of a band. They played these little cartoons of this sort of guidance counselor who uh-huh. would suggest who would suggest other jobs you might be more qualified for. And they were all just like terrible, terrible jobs. <laughs> uh, and it was like this sort of 1950s educational film strip sort of sound to them. And I, I did that sort of 1950s educational film strip music for it. And that was my first like professional job as a composer was doing these little sequences which were really fun it was it was a lot of fun that sounds like a blast yeah and not (laughs) like what you would normally think of as your first job because it was a very specific genre thing and i uh and this was pre-internet a little more difficult to reference that thing i was kind of aware of it in my memory and that's all i sort of had to work off of for for sort of nailing that sound so from that you were able to start growing as a composer and did you get say more video game jobs or did you get television or or film uh, jobs well i had done i ended up uh beca- because i was sort of a pc tech you know i had a lot of experience building my own computers and, and working on them i got a job at a company called prosonus which was uh they had they were known for building sample libraries for the old samplers the old Akai S1000 and Synclavier and in the early Roland uh-huh. samplers and they were getting into uh production music libraries for for PCs and this was like the this is the very early days of CD-ROMs uh and when computers were actually able to play back audio at decent decent audio quality they needed someone that could install a a SCSI card for a CD-ROM <laughs> drive this is this is ancient okay. technology now yeah um uh and they they were all mac based and they couldn't they, none of the people there knew how to do it so and I, I, someone from berkeley uh a classmate of mine knew someone that worked at that company and and knew that i was sort of a a, a pc tech whiz and 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 so i started working there and through some of those people i ended up fixing the computer uh, of of a composer a television and film composer Mm-hmm. who was doing a lot of trailer work and in episodic television work and i sort of started assisting him with with his pc but also writing a few cues here or there and and so i started helping him on his shows with uh, some arrangements a little bit of composing you know the typical sort of assistant work mm-hmm. so I, I started doing that and then i through another channel started doing a, a lot of uh, commercial work and audio branding work for television networks. Um, nice. 
Yeah, and that led into uh, in a roundabout way that led into more episodic television and and then video game trailer work uh, mm-hmm. with with the studio that produced Love, Death, and Robots. That's how yeah. I got involved. That's how I got involved with with them. Was one of the creative director friends of mine that that I had done a lot of uh, of branding work with uh, worked at a company, and that company went out of business, and and several of the people there ended up at Blur Studio, Tim Miller's company, and I uh, started doing some video game trailers and, and things for them. And, and that sort of led, that was about 20 years ago, and that led directly to Love, Death, and Robots. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, because you kind of stuck with that genre of episodic, because Love, Death, and Robots is definitely in an anthology series. Uh, so that really works well for you. What techniques did you come up with for the different cues for Love, Death, and Robots? Uh, well, each episode had a different approach uh, due to the really vastly different styles of animation, different story genres, different directors. Each genre kind of has its own requirements. You know, once you sort of settle on a music style, is it going to be all synthesized? Is it orchestral? Is, you know, what, what are we doing? Each episode had its own demands, but then every director is different. They have a different taste. They have a different idea of what the role of music is going to be in their in their film and they all have different ways of working so every episode was different you know for sunny's edge it was really all about blurring the line between music and sound design Whereas the dump, which is, is set in a dump, a junkyard, mm-hmm. uh, that was all like junkyard band instruments. So the approach for that was was taking either broken instruments or inventing my own instruments or playing instruments the wrong way. Um, you know, on that one, we, you know, we would just you know, bow instruments that weren't really designed to be bowed or bang on <laughs> instruments with, with hammers or the upright bass on that. The stand-up bass on that is actually a cello that we just tuned way down. And what happens when you do that is um, the lighter gauge strings on the cello, when you tune them that low, they get really slack and really kind of sproingy and it. The whole thing just gets a lot looser and sloppier and it really worked for the, for the sound of that. Yeah. Um, good hunting, you know, mixed traditional Chinese music, uh, traditional instruments, traditional, you know, the traditional melodic and harmonic language of, of Chinese music 
with the sort of steampunk aesthetic towards the end. And so for that, we would take traditional Chinese phrases, chop them up and loop them in in ways that kind of had a machine like mechanistic, you know, way that kind of alluded to the machine like steampunk nature of some of the creations in that world. Uh-huh. So everything was, you know, every episode had its own its own challenges and its own way of, you know, different techniques that we would use. And and again, just a different overall approach on the role of music. You know, certain directors would want, you know, wanted more music than others and, you know, wanted music to be featured and really heard and others really wanted music to kind of act more subliminally. So it's a tough uh-huh. question to it's it's a tough question to answer quickly because they were also radically different. I find that it had to be a really extra special challenge to be able to be that with the the different 
episodes. Right. Oh yeah, it was it was a challenge because you're you're you know I mean from a technical standpoint, well just even a psychological standpoint, I and mean, you're working on <laughs> all these radically different styles somewhat simultaneously, like on a typical mm-hmm. on a typical television series. Um, like I did this show a few years ago, Dallas, which was a reboot of the old of TNT had sort of rebooted the classic 1970s and 80s nighttime soap opera right or or uh Mm -hmm. dallas um and i worked on that for three seasons and on a series like a traditional series like that uh, you spend a lot of time on the pilot in the first couple episodes really honing in the sound of the show and once you find that sound and uh and music aesthetic and and just overall approach to scoring the show you sort of maintain that for the rest of the series. The show shows tend to have a type of a sound and a type of way of handling certain kinds of scenes and a, a certain just overall scoring aesthetic. Mm-hmm. In this series, and, and most of your time is spent, you know, uh, the, a lot of time is spent on the pilot, really finding that or the first few first few episodes. In this series, it was kind of like doing fourteen pilots, and in some cases, you were doing. <laughs> two or three of the pilots at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So that was certainly a challenge because you're, you know, uh, you might be working on, even on the same day, we were doing the final mix, uh, Lucky 13, which is mm-hmm. sort of a hybrid orchestral synth score. Um, and I love that one. That one's one of my favorites. No, it's a great episode. Really, really beautifully done. Um Jerome Chen from Sony, who's like a VFX head of VFX or something at Sony, uh, directed that. It just is it's a beautiful story and it's visually just looks incredible. Um, But I was doing that. And when the yogurt took over, they overlapped Mm -hmm. Um, and we were doing the final mix on that. The final dubbing mix where they're mixing in the dialogue and sound effects and and. And um, we just finished Lucky 13 and we were Jerome, uh, who directed Lucky 13, stuck around for yogurt when the yogurt took over. And which is this weird kind of glorpy <laughs> yogurt friendly synthesizer score. Uh-huh. Right? It's a lot of modular analog synths and completely different approach you know halfway through it he said you know he sort of smiled and he's like wait did you do this one too and i said yeah and i did it while i was doing yours i mean (laughs) some some days i had to like the same day i would do do fixes or something on lucky 13 and then jump into something on yogurt and it's a little Uh bit of a you know you get a you you can get a little bit of whiplash and you know fortunately i you know i knew what i was getting into so i had prepared myself somewhat uh but with this vast thing, working with the di- different directors who had different working styles and a compressed amount of time really kept you on your toes. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a typical television series, you're, although most traditional episodic series have different directors direct each episode because they overlap. Mm-hmm. As a composer, you're really only dealing with the producer team. You're not necessarily dealing with each individual episode director uh, on yeah. a typical television. You're dealing with an executive producer and a production team that that have set the aesthetic for the show and the in the in the schedule and the in the in the music the approach to music. 
so that's consistent. Um, uh, so this was different because you, Tim Miller and the team and Jennifer Miller and, and, and Victoria, our producers, really wanted to give each episode of Love, Death and the Robots directors a lot of freedom and leeway to really do their vision on this thing. And so while I worked with the producers consistently on this, I in the earlier stages, I worked really extensively with the directors and, and the producers were a little more hands off early on, uh, just so the directors could kind of really realize their vision. And the producers would only step in if they felt like somehow it was it wasn't feeling quite like their overall vision for the show or they were having a problem with the queue. That's when they would get involved. So it was a, a quite a different approach. But it was uh, it kept me on my toes, but I loved it. It was great. I had a, That's I good. Had a, I had a blast because all the directors are different and everyone was really great. And it was I had a blast. So have you been able to incorporate has season two actually started the process or have you been working on season two of Love, Death and Robots? Or is that even a thing yet? Oh, it's a thing. So there's definitely oh, okay. there's definitely a season two. Okay. Uh, I have started doing some some early work on it. I, I I'm I have to be careful because I'm not sure what I'm really allowed to talk to. And like, oh, I haven't no, really that's been fine. Given, I, just, I haven't really I been guided. Yeah, yeah. I haven't really been given guidelines. So, uh, but I am I, I'm 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 doing stuff. <laughs> Awesome. Whether or not anything I'm doing is going to end up in the final thing or not is yet to be seen. But um, so but here's the yeah, thing: when when you go from season one and you're going to season two, are there any elements from season one that you've been able to incorporate into things with season two? Have there been similarities between the two seasons so far? Well, like it's again, that's a tough thing to. To answer, uh, I would say I can give you a kind of a blanket answer because I can't really I can't really talk about like what's in season two or anything like that. Um, But as an in general, as an anthology series and like I explained in one of your earlier questions, like musically, there's theoretically nothing's going to really carry over. Right. Because. Mm It's an anthology, so every story is different. Every genre and style is different. So other than our overall vision for the show and whether or not it feels love, death, and robots-y enough Uh (laughs) musically, like I wouldn't necessarily bring any actual musical themes from season one to season two Uh because it's like, you know, as an anthology series – uh, nothing really carries over from whatever. You know, and, and we haven't really, yeah, I haven't, I would assume the theme song will, will, will carry over the, the actual main, main yeah. title, which is, but I, that may change. I haven't really talked to anybody about it, so I don't know. Uh, um, no, that's uh, why I just, I just was really curious about it because it's like sometimes, you know, with certain seasons, say with Lost in Space and Christopher Leonard's uh, right. doing the score for that, uh, with talking to a friend of mine, Eric Woods, he was talking about how Christopher Leonard seemed to use the similar themes from season one into season two and how he incorporated different elements of it. And and I was like, how did that work with a, an anthology series? But it's, you know, I mean, here's a theory. Uh, <laughs> this is right. from someone that doesn't even work in the industry. But a theory would be if it's, if a person that's a director that had dealings with season one, 
and they have element of season two with that same director, would you be able to use elements of those themes into the next volume of it, so to speak? Uh, the only the only time I think that would ever happen is, you know, this is just a hypothetical, but like the only time anything uh-huh. we would do it is if like if there was like, you know, a dump part two or something, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If like if yeah. one of the, yeah. if one of the stories or the characters came back, I guess you could do that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, if, if this is going to be all new stuff, then you, I wouldn't, the only thing that would really carry over would be with like a, if some of the directors are, are doing new ones, um, the only thing that would carry over would be just sort of their working styles and their mm-hmm. overall aesthetic to music. But sonically, I wouldn't think uh, anything would certainly not themes. I wouldn't think themes would, would carry over. Um, I yeah, wish, yeah. I wish they I would, just, because that, that is, that's a big part of finding a theme for something is, is a big part of a show. And, and, and it's, it's nice when you can lean on that when you've got episodes coming week after week and you've like, oh, I have themes for these characters and I'm not yeah. reinventing the wheel every week, you know, and mm-hmm. sadly, I'm I'm reinventing the wheel every episode, <laughs> <laughs> but that's <laughs> all right. Yeah. No, it's great. It's fun. It's uh, it's 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 great. Um, Who's been uninfluenced in your composing career? Oh, I mean, every band I ever liked. Uh, um, uh, well, like, like, you know, like I said, I decided to get into the fields based on, you know, the thing that that kind of sparked my interest in it was the the certainly in the 80s was the, the sort of iconic John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith scores mm-hmm. who were there and who were giants of that era. Right. Oh yeah. Um, Michael Kamen's score for Terry Gilliam's films were a big influence, uh, as was, yeah, uh, like, Veg- like Brazil. Brazil. I mean, I, I yeah. love that movie and yeah. I love that score. I don't and, think it gets enough love. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. But even, you know, when, when I was in college, uh, one of my film scoring classes, one of the things we had to do was an analysis, you know, one of your like advanced studies classes was you had to you know at the end of the semester you had to do an analysis of a film score Uh and in in it you know in addition to a you know a written kind of term paper kind of analysis uh setting themes and whatnot you actually had to do transcription of one of the cues you actually just listen to it and transcribe like a six stave transcription and i wanted to do uh Michael came in score for the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh, nice. Uh, and I remember my professor just kind of cringing when I said, I want to do this <laughs> adventures of Baron Munchausen score. Uh, and everyone was doing, you know, taxi driver or, you know, some Bernard Herman score yeah. or a class classic, you know, Elmer Bernstein or Dimitri Tiomkin or something, you know, like a classic yeah. film score. Uh, and I wanted to do this movie that just came out and, uh, you know, and he, he sort of was just kind of, kind of grimacing. And he said, well, I, I had the, I had the film on, on VHS and I just said, here, like, let me give you, like, you can borrow it. You can watch it and you tell me if it's okay. And he watched <laughs> it and he really enjoyed it and he really enjoyed the score. And he said, okay, you can do it. Um, <laughs> I love that score. It had some really, he just some clever things with it and i remember one sequence where they're they're kind of climbing 
climbing off the moon and and there's all this throughout the cosmos you, they're sort of hanging off the moon and you could see the sort of clockwork sort of kind of classic sort of clockwork image imagery of the heavens you know mm-hmm. uh below them and and he, he went into this very kind of uh bach like piece of music i'm not sure if it was a if it was a canon or not but it's a kind of a classic bach like mathematical genius uh, quality and i just I, you know I, I was really struck by that and, and a few other elements in the film and so that was that was a big influence
Vangelis in the eighties. I mean, he was he was huge. He did Blade Runner, mm-hmm. which is a classic score. Um, um, and the Bounty, the Mutiny on the Bounty, and you know these these wonderful. Uh, oh, with uh, like um, oh, who is that? Corngold? No, no. no I mean, Steiner, this isn't is, it? was it Corngold? Was I don't think it was Corngold. I thought Corngold, it was Corngold did like King's Row. Yeah, Corngold did like yeah. King's Row and. Uh, yeah. Um, Adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this was so. This was the '80s. This was Vangelis doing oh, it all. Okay. All synthesizer. It was called the Bounty. And well, because uh, Mutiny I, on the Bounty was an old swashbuckling film exactly. that I thought either was, Max Steiner or um, uh, Corngold or and what's sure, the other exactly. one? Sure, exactly. So this was sort of a modern <laughs> take on I it. I think it had like Mel Gibson in it and. Oh, Anthony wow. Hopkins maybe or okay. as, as Captain Bly. I don't I don't remember, 
and it had this synthesizer score, uh, which you wouldn't think for that kind of thing, but it, it the glassy synth thing with shots of the, sh- you know, like these uh, shots of the ship cutting through the water, sort of at the waterline. And it, it, it was anyway, uh-huh. Vangelis, and of course, Chariots of Fire. So Val- Vangelis was huge back then. And the what he did with Blade Runner, I, I, it really, the thing I noticed was with, like the Blade Runner soundtrack, uh-huh. when that came out on CD, it wasn't the original Vangelis soundtrack. It was yeah, another, it was an orchestra doing a cover of it mm-hmm. uh, with yeah. some synthesizers in an orchestra. It just was unsatisfying. It wasn't mm-hmm. the thing. And it, it occurred to me, listening back to the Vangelis thing, how important, not just the notes, but like he was doing his own sound design in there. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, I like, real... I like how, you know, how that scoring, how, who was it? Benjamin Walfish. Mm-hmm. How he had been influenced by Vangelis to mm-hmm. use those same elements with Blade Runner 2049. Ex- exactly. And I think and, that's and, a really good example. Exactly. When when Vangelis did it, like it was kind of a revelation to me, like, oh, it's mm-hmm. not just about it's not just about picking the right theme or the right notes. Sometimes just a random sound. Uh-huh. Because, you know, Vangelis, he did like this sort of like weird sort of random wind chimes or piano notes or strange percussive elements. And and that's a, it's a hard score to find, too. Yeah. I mean, like it finally came out. You can yeah. it's out now. You can get it. Um, and okay. it's I, I'm sure on the Internet somewhere. And but back then it's so and that really interested me, like the role of of production uh-huh. in, a, in a sound in a, in a film score, not just coming up with a theme and it's typical things you think about when I mean, you think of the john williams score you kind of think of these classic 1980s orchestral uh-huh. scores and in his his the way he uses it i mean he's a brilliant orchestrator as, as well as a composer so he but it's still kind of in the realm of, of orchestra uh and vangelis yeah. it made me keenly aware of how just the right kind of sound and the way it's produced makes a huge difference
even with orchestral stuff in in Jaws, the scene when Richard Dreyfuss's character has to go check out the guys. They find that guy's boat in the middle of the night. It's you know they uh-huh. have the lights, and he actually goes, puts on some some a mask and some snorkeling gear, and and goes down to check out the boat. And while he's under the water, there is some score there, and it's harp and strings and kind of these parallel minor chords that are just sort of uh-huh. disorienting, and it sort of works really well uh, for this sort of mysterious underwater thing. What you're hearing is just the return from a reverb. It's just a reverb. Uh-huh. Uh, you're not hearing the direct orchestra signal. You're just hearing the the, the, the reverb, which is really interesting because it's it's sort of the way stuff sounds when it's being played underwater. And that, that's yeah. a, clever, a clever little production thing that you don't necessarily really think of. So that, that keyed me in uh, on how important the choice of sounds and production was. So that, that was a huge influence on me in it.
I think when you listen to some of my work in in Love, Death and Robots, especially in Sunny's Edge, mm-hmm. the sound design aspect of it is sort of a of of the music is a, is a, a big part of that score. And I'm not sure it would really work if you played uh, one of the th- one of the themes I sent you was the, was one of the clips you have uh, is a piece called a cue called Jennifer visits, mm-hmm. which is in love. I'm not sure that would necessarily work uh, as well if it were just played on a piano. You yeah. Know what I mean? It's yeah. part of it is the, the glitchy pads mm-hmm. and that particular synthesizer instrument and some of the other, other things. It, it makes a huge difference in, in the way it works with the, the, the visual aesthetic of, of that piece.
of the things I noticed in your career is that you worked on, like you had mentioned earlier, that you worked with the studio Blur, and Mm -hmm. you worked on the animated short Rockfish. What can you tell me about that? Wow, that was a long time ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was a short film. I loved that that film. I loved that film. I watched it probably 20 times. Back, like back when it first sort yeah. of appeared is that oh interesting yep. um you know uh, that was uh, in addition to you know in tim mill i think uh, i'm not speaking out of school here or whatever the term is uh, tim would say that you know his vision for blue studio was always he wanted to be like dark pixar Mm-hmm. And they wanted to be Pixar uh, and do feature films and, and things. And so in addition to uh, a lot of the visual effects work they were doing and commercial work and video game trailers and, and video game uh, cinematic cinematics and, and cutscenes and whatnot, they would do shorts just just for the love of just trying to do art, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and and do that um it just like how pixar got started but you know one that they got started by winning an, an academy award for a short film uh-huh. uh so tim you know uh wanted to, to do that as well and and that was one way of of him sort of kind of stretching his legs a little bit um so that was a rockfish was a short film tim miller wrote and directed i was already working for them and he asked me to do the score for it um and it was a really excellent experience we we really enjoyed it uh, i went on from there to do go for broke which oh was yeah nom- yeah which was nom- nominated for an oscar i actually co-wrote that with a composer friend of mine tony morales um uh who has gone on to do some really great stuff and uh and i did a few others there's another one called a gentleman's duel which i did which was a, mm-hmm. a favorite of mine that i did with them and so we, we've done a few uh animated shorts and so love death and robots really is is in some ways an extension of that same thing because each each one of these episodes is really kind of their own standalone little short film Even you as a composer, uh, do you have any particular one from season one that you it's almost like a, a secret passion for you? 
Do you have one of those? Oh, I mean, somebody else asked me that too, and I just feel like like you're asking me to like choose my, my parent <laughs> to choose their favorite child or something. <laughs> if you ask me if like is there a favorite cue I've done, um, sure. Uh, um like like if you ask the people at blur uh uh, or love death and robots what like what's rob's favorite cue in the in the in the show they would probably tell you the one i i wouldn't shut up about was something from alternate histories and oh yes that's it's that's an awesome one i love that one uh, there is a there is a cue in there. It's just this polka. It's it's the you can find it's the it ends up being the end credit music. It's just this polka. It's just and I didn't even write it. It's an old Austrian traditional polka theme. You know, it's a couple hundred years old or whatever. And I just did an arrangement of it, but it's just so goofy. It's got these hand claps, and it's just it just made me smile. And I had done that in the midst of a pretty crazy part of the schedule, and things uh-huh. were just sort of nuts. We knew we were going to do some traditional traditional Austrian music, and it just was like I just like kept talking about it it just and somehow it just sounded really good it really jumped out of the speakers like somehow yeah. that sometimes when you're when you're recording something and just something just pops and that just sort of popped out of the speakers and so i was like i was telling him like that's going to be the end credits for this episode i'm sorry <laughs> like it's so goofy Sunny's Edge is a favorite of mine. I think it's just one of those scores that really it really clicked. But there there all there are moments in all of them that I really mm-hmm. I really love the sound of the dump. The whole junkyard band thing was a lot of fun. I I was I had been up all night with something like really we did that score. I was really stressed out and I really wasn't ready for it. And we had you know the musicians come in. And a lot of what we did was just improvise on the spot. And I and I built the score out of these in, improvised things. So there was no rhyme or reason to any of it, except <laughs> ki- except kind of a tempo. Yeah, I was a little just because because of lack of sleep, I was just a little loopy. So I, I think we went to some places I wouldn't have normally let myself go to as far as like getting silly and goofy and, and, and doing things.
I think that that really helped uh, that score. And and um, you know when the ogre took over, I really good hunting is another you know favorite of mine just because there are moments that are that are really beautiful, and I really mm-hmm. enjoyed working with sort of uh, because it's set in in British colonial era Hong Kong, you know, sort of incorporating some elements of of ch- traditional Chinese music. It wasn't. I, I didn't do it. Uh, it wasn't, you know, completely uh, spot on accurate because it was this sort of British colonial era Hong Kong with with steam powered robots, which yeah, didn't exist. Yeah. So it's a little bit of an alternate yeah. universe, which gave us yeah. I, it gave me some I, I felt some leeway to sort of not it didn't have to be a, a perfect um, recreation of that. But just using some of the the Bao and Dizi and, and Gusheng and, and some of the traditional Chinese instruments uh, was a lot of fun and incorporating that with some, some of the steampunk stuff was uh, really, really, uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And they they all have things. I mean, there's moments in in Lucky Thirteen that I really enjoyed. Um, her just sort of um, there's a beautiful little montage sequence where she is sort of bonding with her ship. You know what I mean? And becoming yeah. friends with her 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 ship. And, and and that's a really sweet moment. And I really enjoyed working on that. And cool. and um, there's just what? a lot I really enjoyed about a lot of them. So it's hard to pick. Yeah. Well, that's all right. Um, what do you have planned for your next project that you can tell me about? Um, boy, not a whole lot. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all about season two right now, just kind of getting involved, trying to find, find the right sound for for a couple of these things I'm, I'm kind of starting on and, and dial, trying to dial in something that's working. And, and, you know, everybody's really, it's, it's a very um, creative team. And and I've worked with the people at Blur long enough that I feel safe in experimenting mm-hmm. and failing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which you don't necessarily get when you're working with someone for the first time. You're a little on edge and you don't want to, you know, they, they, I think they try, hopefully, <laughs> I think they trust me enough that like, even if my early experiments maybe don't quite hit the mark that I'm going to get there. Um, and, uh, and when you're working with somebody for the first time, they don't know, they don't trust you that like, Oh, he always, you know, finds it. So I'm doing that, but I do have, do you have side C- projects. Well, not side pro. I mean, I have other oh, okay. things that I work on. I I have some video game trailer work. I can't really talk about. Um, oh no, that's all right. I video just video game I was trailer just video game trailer work with Blur and a couple of other studios. I also, you know, I'm the composer on the Bachelor franchise. So oh nice. I just finished season 24 of the Bachelor. Um, oh wow. We're about to start up 
season 16 of The oh, Bachelorette, man. which Crazy. will be happening fairly soon. And uh, now, are uh, you are you the the sole composer on that, or I am? Do you work well, with the team, or? it's I'm the composer on that. I have a partner Matt Bowen who does a lot of those. We sort of co-write a lot of that stuff together. Okay. Matt's been working with me on that, and he's a credited co-composer uh, mm-hmm. on that. He sort of started out as an assistant of mine, and, and, and then graduated to some extent. And he's he does his own stuff too. Um, he does a lot of work with Chris Leonard's, by the way, uh, who's oh, a friend cool. of mine. He's a, nice. he's a good friend, good friend of mine. Yeah. So I know Matt has worked with Chris on the Boys and a few other projects. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. As a as a score producer on the Boys. Uh, the Bachelor uses a handful of music libraries too. Uh, Warner I Brothers. Imagine. Warner I Brothers imagine. has their own library, and I've built a, a, a custom library for them as well. Oh, nice. That's cool. Uh, when it comes to actual scoring, like if they need to send picture to someone or a scene that needs to be mm-hmm. scored, uh, or a library won't cut it. Yeah, I'm the only person uh, that'll do it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, nice, I'm, the one, nice. I'm the one that gets called for that. Well, but if you look nice, at though. if you look at the credits, there's like a handful of additional yeah. music composers, and it's all the yeah. other. Uh, people do anybody who's ever worked on the show in the past um although i've i've been involved with it since season two. Oh, nice back in 2002 oh, <laughs> 2002 wow. that goes a long way doesn't it it really does i've been involved yeah since way back then and there were a couple seasons in the mid like 2005 or six i didn't i i, I wasn't on it I had been I moved over to Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and then then I kind of came back to The Bachelor. So yeah, there's there there are a lot of names on the credits for that, just because mm-hmm. other other libraries have music that gets used in the show, and more That's of a needle nice, more of a needle drop sort of sense. But it's it's yeah. nice because uh, it's you know it's two hours every week, mm-hmm. kind of a nutty schedule, um, and to score all that. And they use that show. It's a needle drop aesthetic, you know, mm-hmm. so it's a lot of very short cues. Little, and, yeah, yeah. And to to actually score each one of those and the the range is huge, right? Stylistically, um, which helps for Love, Death and Robots because I'm used to doing just an insane range of stuff um, in my commercial work as well. But, you know, in, in, in The Bachelor and Extreme Home Makeover, we did a lot of very genre specific things. And, you know, with oh, The Bachelor, yeah. they, go, they go to a lot of exotic locations. So we, 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 we do traditional music from all these sort of exotic locations they go to. But like scoring that show would, would be almost impossible because it's, oh, yeah. you know, it's a couple, it's like a hundred <laughs> for every for every hour of program, I mean, it's got to be over a hundred cues. Oh man, um, that's a lot. And, that's a yeah, lot. Yeah, scoring, you know, and uh, some of them are twenty seconds long or fifteen seconds long. Yeah. And like, if yeah. you have to do something that sounds like a fully produced rock song or an orchestral thing or something, it still takes a ton of time to do that production, even if it's only used for 10 seconds <laughs> dialing in that sound so uh it would yeah they call me with a handful of things each week like oh this is a scene that we just they would have to do some crazy edits because this a scene goes from one place and ends up in a very di- you know it starts romantic and it ends up in a very different place <laughs> um or someone gets a little crazy and things go off the rails um and to do that with library would be require some crazy editing that would i think be a little too disjointed so 
that's something where we would have to, you know, sculpt a, a cue that really follows this journey in a, in a mm-hmm. seamless musical way where you don't really notice it making those those changes. It just needs to sort of happen sort of organically. Here's my last thing for you. Yeah. Um, one thing that I'd like to I always like to direct people toward you. Uh, where can people find you? Well, I do have some samples of my work on my website, which is just robcairns.com, R-O-B-C-A-I-R-N-S.com, or robertcairns.com. Either one of those will take you there. Mm -hmm. I am uh, on Twitter. I am Rob Cairns Music. Okay. Uh, uh, I have an Instagram account. I don't really do much on Instagram, and I really don't. I don't do a whole lot on Twitter either. Um, I should probably also start a Facebook artist page, although I haven't. <laughs> I do have a, a handful of samples up on uh, a couple of Love, Death, and Robot things up on my website, on my mm-hmm. music page there. A couple of things from Love, Death, and Robots. I'm going to post a few more, um, mm-hmm. and, and you have a couple that you can play in, in mm-hmm. conjunction with this interview. Um, yeah, I don't really have... You know, I have to be careful. We haven't put out a soundtrack. I'm I'm still working to, to, to try to get that to happen. Yeah. Be like, I've got a lot of requests for it. And, uh, <laughs> That's cool, though. That's it, really good. Yeah, I'm, people really love it, love it, and uh, I'm really you know kind of flattered uh, that that people really enjoyed it. And it's it's nice uh, that that when your work sort of uh, resonates with with people. And I'm and it's interesting that the show uh, has gotten because it's Netflix, it's got a global reach. Instantane- oh, yeah. It has it's instantaneously. And I'm just shocked at, at the the number of people who have really, really embraced it all over the world. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Uh, so uh, one other thing that I was curious about, I really appreciate being able to talk to you, Rob, and talking about Love, Death and Robots and how it's just so, so neat to really get under your skin to see the creative process that you use for each different element of the anthology. I love that. Cool. Um, well, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure. I, I'm, I've uh, great questions and I've really enjoyed it, man. Yeah. So, so I, I want to thank you for this great interview, Rob and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. Thank you.